Welcome to the Canadian Orthodox Podcast, a show devoted to the exploration of the Christian faith in all of its mystery and diversity within the unique intersections of the Canadian context. Today's episode is a conversation I recorded back in April with Brad Jerzak. Brad is a teacher and author based in Abbotsford, British Columbia, and serves as a reader and monastery preacher at All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery. He's also a faculty member of St. Stephen's University, as well as the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. In this conversation, we discussed the unwrathing of God, an idea presented in his 2015 book, A More Christ-Like God, A More Beautiful Gospel, and used this as a springboard to explore the implications of this idea in topics such as the cruciform image of God, the reading of the scriptures, salvation, judgment, ultimate reconciliation, and the cultivated imagination of the church. I think that in the midst of the broad deconstruction-reconstruction conversation that many of us find ourselves as a part of, Brad offers a refreshing and compelling perspective for what could be possible in the orientation towards a more beautiful gospel as found in the imaginations of the early church fathers and the wider Orthodox tradition. Having read and appreciated many of his books, it was a lot of fun to be able to engage with him in this format, and I hope that you enjoy connecting with our conversation. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the show and being willing to uh, take some time to talk to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Maybe, um, I'm sure some of our listeners will be familiar with your work, um, but maybe just in general, let's let's start with um, some introductions. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my wife, Eden, and I live in Abbotsford, BC, and in terms of work, um, she actually pastors at a local congregation, I would call it, I don't know, progressive independent, something like that. Um, and then I am, I worship at the All Saints of Orthodox, All, Sa- All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery. It's a very long word. I just call it All Saints. So it's a monastery where Archbishop Lazar Pahalo is, um, the mm. abbot, and he's my spiritual father. And then in terms of my work, I'm the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. And so even though I'm based in British Columbia, um, we're doing a lot of school online, obviously, these days. But in normally, also, we have two-week intensives. So I just commute there each semester for that. And aside from that, I, I am an author and... What else do I do? I edit a magazine and so on. So I, I, I've cobbled together a lifestyle. <laughs> there you go. Um, were you were you always Eastern Orthodox, or is that something um, that's come up more recently? Um, what does your faith journey look like in that sense? Yeah, well, I'm almost, I don't know, I'm late 50s now, so it's a long story. Um, 20 years a Baptist in Manitoba, and then I went off to college where I met my wife, and then her Mennonite church called us to come be associate pastors out in Aldergrove. So I began ministry as, as a youth and young adults minister in a Mennonite church for 10 years. That's where I was ordained and became Reverend Brad. Um, after 10 years there, we planted a church called Fresh Wind that was focused on people with disabilities and uh, those who struggled with addictions and the poor and so on. So it's very much a church for the margins, kind of a small C charismatic slash contemplative church plant. So we we were there, I was there 10 years, and then Eden um, led for the next five years while I did seminary. At some mm-hmm. point, I suppose it's about 18 years ago, I met Archbishop Lazar, and he mm-hmm. began what was a 10-year catechism, uh, at the end of which I was chrismated in let's see, that would be 20, 2012 now. Mm. And uh, I was tonsured as a reader at the monastery. So what happens there is we've got two or three monks living there at the time, all the time. But on weekends, we have a we have a congregation of, you know, usually about 60 or 70 people show up. Mm. Um, immigrants from Eastern Europe, 
uh, real sense of family, extended family and all of that. And I am sometimes the monastery preacher. Hmm. So um, we, we rotate with preachers in our services there. And uh, so I've been, I guess I've been there regularly since I was chrismated. So what is that? That's got to be nine years ago now. So it's a long, a long journey from, from the time I met him in 2003 till today. He's been really my teacher. As, and now in more recent years, uh, Father John Bear, who's out in Aberdeen, uh, has become a teacher of mine too, in a sort of more of a formal mentoring sense with terms of the, patristic theology. Yeah, yeah. What was it that um, first drew you into, into the Orthodox tradition? Um, I always think these these moves work better inside relationships. So what happened was um, a mentor of mine, Ron Dart, who ended up being my PhD supervisor, he recommended that we start a magazine together and that he knew these Orthodox monks with a print shop who might be into what we were, were doing. And sure enough, they were. So my initial experience of Archbishop Lazar was, you, you know, printing and trimming and stapling and folding these magazines. And I would spend hours and hours with him um, doing this. And during that time, uh, in the first draw was that my everything retributive in my theology was unraveling. I could no mm. longer, I could no longer embrace penal substitution um, as a theory of the atonement, which I had defended in my master's thesis. And now I just, it was all unraveling and I, I shared my worries about it and my process in it with Archbishop Lozarni is like, well, that's ridiculous. We, you're not even allowed to believe that in the Orthodox Church. <laughs> I'm like, what? You mean I'd have permission to let that go and not be called like a flaming liberal? He's like, no, no, there's 350 million of us. And, um, and, and that's just a heresy anyway. You know, like he would talk like this. And it was so liberating. And then I mm -hmm. gradually found out other elements of retribution in our theology uh, that I could let those go to. For example, um, you don't have to believe in penal substitution. You don't have to believe in eternal conscious torment. You don't mm -hmm. have to believe in, that God literally commanded, um, you know, the Old Testament people of God to commit genocide. All of these things are... Uh, those are those are not dogmas in the Orthodox Church, and I found out I could have a harbor mm. um, instead of ducking in the. I, I I talked about it in the past, like when I was talking about these things publicly, it was like I was in a foxhole, and everyone's firing at me from all sides. Suddenly, yeah. the Orthodox Church became a harbor, where even though there's disagreement about that stuff. You're not a heretic for believing what Gregory of Nyssa believed, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then the second part for me was not theological. It was I, I had a I had a meltdown in 2008 and um, really, I think, damaged my nervous system. And I I found I needed I needed the beauty and the order of the liturgy as medicine. And especially mm. when you're broken to hear the word mercy or merciful 154 times during the divine liturgy yeah. is, is good for the soul. And I had a, and I had a confessor who was, who exuded that, uh, Bishop Varlam and he, he's departed now, but, uh, and I think he'll probably end up becoming, be, being recognized as a saint, but that these are the mm -hmm. kind of people that tucked me under their wings. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Well, a lot of the things that you've just mentioned are um, ideas that you really did bring forward and um, I think were expressed really, really beautifully in your 2015 book, uh, A More Christ-Like God. And um, that I, one of the ideas that you present in that book is this, this notion of unwrathing God and, and reclaiming the beauty of the gospel. And I want to kind of use that as a through line or a foundation to... Um, our, our conversation from this point. So maybe let's start with that term unwrathing, um, which is a pretty like compelling and provocative term that, that does stay with you when you encounter it. But maybe we could just start by defining that term and like what you were, what you were meaning by that. 
Sure. You know, what actually happened was I was beginning to teach on this stuff. And while I was writing the book, someone wrote to me and just say, I said, I love how, how you're unwrathing God. And I'm like, Hmm. no, I'm not. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's a good provocative phrase. I'm going to use that after all, but then I do have to explain it. I'm not saying that the scriptures don't describe wrath in connection with God. What I am saying is that the early church fathers recognized that the term wrath is an anthropomorphism that Mm. we use to describe the consequences of sin when we turn away from love. Mm. So it'd be like if I turn, if, if the prodigal son turns away from the love of his father, wrath is the pig pen. Now, the father didn't send him to the pig pen. <laughs> the father didn't inflict him with the pig pen. It's his own turning that caused it. But in the scriptures, sometimes it will describe those consequences, you know, as if God were generating it. It will even use the phrase once in a while, the wrath of God. And and it's like, so so the fathers come along and, and they say, well, yes, it uses that language. But an anthropomorphism is when you project um human attributes onto God. And that's fine in terms of rhetoric or language, but Mm -hmm. you must not literalize it. And so in terms of unwrathing God, what I'm saying is whenever we speak about the wrath of God, we're actually using that that word or phrase as a metaphor for God's consent to our defiance and the consequences but um you know so i want to quote john cassian here he was one of the Mm. great church fathers in the fourth century and and he says it is without horrible profanity these things cannot be understood literally of him who is declared by the authority of holy scripture to be invisible ineffable incomprehensible inestimable simple and uncompounded so neither can the passion of anger and wrath be attributed to that unchangeable nature without fearful blasphemy wow so i i have probably i have pages and pages of of homilies and writings by the church fathers that are exactly like that, where they're saying, um, yes, we know scripture uses the term wrath as a kind of giving over. He will, he gives you over to your demands and your defiance. And yes, the scripture uses that for what happens in the shadow when I turn away from the light. Hmm. But, but when we use that language, we must not literalize it or we create an idol and commit a blasphemy. And I'm like, wow, he even said monstrous blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. So they, these guys are unwrathing God. And and so I'm what I'm trying to do is walk in their footsteps. And mm. I, if I could share one other thing about that, there is a developing doctrine of wrath within the scriptures. So yeah. Maybe in th- you could say in three acts. Act one, they believed God causes everything. So if something bad happened, God caused it. That means he's angry and he's punishing you and causing you harm. That's wrath. Violent anger that does harm. That's that, It's why wrath is called one of the seven deadly sins in Catholicism. It's horrible. And so the, the, the earliest view was that God did this when you sinned. And then the second act would be, well, that wouldn't be holy, so God needs to keep his hands clean. So he doesn't actually directly wrath you. He sends the destroying angel to do it for him, sort of like a, a hitman to keep God's hands clean. Now, act three, actually... Wrath becomes a synonym or for the destroyer and for Satan. And so God sends his Messiah to destroy the destroyer and overcome the wrath. So now wrath is an enemy of God. Mm. And, and God is our friend in rescuing us from it. And so it would be, you see all three right in the story of the 10th plague. Uh, did Some passages will say God killed the firstborn. Some will say God sent the destroyer to kill the firstborn. And then some will say, no, God had God had them paint the, the, the cross with blood over their doorpost 
so that God saves them from the destroyer. And that becomes the Messiah's role ultimately. So you've got this developing idea of it, but ultimately by the fourth century, they are very clear that, um, uh, that, that, that this is an anthropomorphism that we, we need to stop literalizing because it was creating idols. Well, and something that, that stands out in a lot of that is there's this necessity to see development and to see an ongoing conversation within the scriptures themselves and then within the church tradition to be able to, as we're grasping and reaching for an understanding of the God that's revealed in Jesus, that avoidance of a flat reading of the scripture becomes comes a necessity. Because it, it seems to be the case in even just this week in in. Uh, a number of different conversations with people in my life who are, I guess if we could use the term deconstructing, who are deconstructing these kind of images of God as the wrathful judge or God as the one who, you know, orders a certain way of life. And so then the way of being Christian involves um, understanding what is or isn't like right in order that we can avoid a particular consequence. And in a lot of these conversations, the question comes back to, well, like, where do we go when we ask the question, what is God like? And, you know, if the answer immediately is we need to go to the scriptures, then that brings up its own questions when, on the one hand, we can see within um, John's writing the the revelation of God as love and love defined in terms of a self-giving, cruciform uh, Jesus. And then on the other hand, you'll have have stories where I think like, like 1 Samuel 15, where that same God or the name ascribed to God orders the absolute annihilation and destruction of the Amalekite people for a sin that was done like many generations earlier. And when we're reading from this like flat perspective, that question really, really comes to the fore is like, how do we talk meaningfully about the character of God when our own revelatory tradition or the scriptures that we're appealing to contain these contradictory, contradictory images? Amen. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> that's it. That, that's exactly how I would see it too. And and so um, I grew up in a, a tradition that um, that had faith statements, both in the church and in the colleges that I went to. That they would always say, you know, that the scriptures are our final authority. Mm. And and I'm like, no, Jesus is our final authority. And where script where where Jesus and other and the scriptures testifying about him or about God are not in alignment and we I, we were in denial of that but just read the book you know and where they're not in alignment then then Christ gets the last word and so we have some very important scriptures about that um John 1:18 no one no one has seen God at any time, but God, the only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known, you know, or in Matthew in within the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, or Hebrews one, he's that God has spoken in many ways at various times through prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so you get, you get this idea that Jesus is the word of God. So like I was always told, you know, that the word of God is the Bible. It's like mm -hmm. the Bible says Jesus is the word of God. Sometimes it will use that word to describe the promises of God or the covenants of God or something like that. But in, at the end of the day, the the sword that it, this double-edged sword that Hebrews 4 talks about in, in the very next verse says he, it's a him. Mm -hmm. It's Jesus. And so to say that Jesus is the word of God, uh, Brian Zahn says it this way, means that, that um, Jesus Christ is what God has to say about himself. Mm. And in what God has to say about himself, he brings a correction to what prior uh, narrators mm. would infer about God through their experiences. They were having real experiences of God, but in 1 Samuel 15, the narrator is describing God in ways that are absolutely not like Christ. Mm. 
and that are primarily extensions of of Samuel. It is Samuel's characters being projected onto God. When Samuel's mad, God is mad. When Samuel wants a genocide, God wants a genocide. Jesus mm. says, I'm telling you, and I'm God. <laughs> At least with Orthodox, I can say that. I'm That Jesus is God, you know, unapologetically, mm. and that he says, um, it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. Mm. Not God. I have come, God in the flesh that you would have life he's the life giver not the death dealer and so when i asked archbishop lazar about for samuel 15 he 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 just he, he says look at this is not the heart of god this is not the abba that jesus revealed and so so uh, no god did not say that this is the projections of a cantankerous old man who's still caught in his bigotry and i'm like but 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 <laughs> but abba, the bible um it's the word of God. And that's when his famous saying, um, I just virtually famous, I suppose, he, he said, no, Jesus is the word of God and any scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. Mm. And even the disciples didn't see this until the road to Emmaus, where mm. it's only then that he, un he unlocks the scriptures and reveals they were all about him to begin with. And we have no business in the Old Testament without Jesus as our sponsor, showing us that they are direct, they are prefiguring His passion and and resurrection. Yeah. To what extent would um, I'm thinking about the patristic concept of the immutability of God, the unchanging nature of Him. To what extent does that play into how we're how we ought to read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus? Because I'm thinking even just in the background, like some of the ways that we've attempted to resolve the tensions is to say, you know, there's Old Testament action, there's New Testament action, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, or different dispensations of how God has chosen to interact with with his, his creation or his people. So to what extent does immutability or that concept of immutability root us in um, or affect the way that we ought to read these these texts oh that's a great question so um for listeners immutability means unchangeable but don't think of it as like a granite wall mm. think of it as a person who is constantly faithful so we would never talk about immutability as an attribute divorced from god's essence which is love so I want to I want to say that God is immutable love. God is holy love. God is just love. God is righteous love. Every attribute you can imagine is only a facet of that one diamond, which is pure relationality and and self giving love. So if we're going to talk about immutability, think immutable love, which means he never withdraws his mercy. He never turns from those he loves. He never. He never abandons or forsakes us. You can count on him in his faithfulness. So if we if we just really th think in terms of this constant flow of eternal slash infinite love into the world that is does not increase or decrease based mm. on human circumstances it is infinite it can't you can't have infinite plus one or minus one it's infinite that's what we mean by immutable love and that god who is love is mutable then we can say now we're going to read this through christ and the new testament says jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever and so and that all the if all the fullness of the godhead dwelled in him bodily that means He's not part of God. The fullness of the Godhead is revealed in Christ alone. He's our image. That's it. And he's a cruciform image of um, who, whose unfailing mercies um, extend wider, higher, longer, and deeper than we can conceive, ask, or imagine. Then, now we can say, all right, so what do we do with these dispensations and all of that? It's like, well people were developing their understanding was developing their interpretation of their encounters with god were developing um god's not developing 
God no. is constant. And and so then, um, but the constant, the, the plumb line for what the constant is, is, is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Mm-hmm. And so then the fathers will look back and they'll say, oh, so that's who descends on Mount Sinai mm-hmm. to give the Decalogue. That's who's, that's who's revealing himself in the burning bush and in the fiery furnace in Daniel. Uh, this he is the she- the same Shekinah glory that filled the t- Solomon's temple, dwelled in the womb of Mary the Theotokos in her, in her pregnancy, and so that's kind of how I would run it. I go a immutable love, b Jesus is the same yesterday and forever, and then and then and then c he's always been that, and mm. any di- any departure from that you can probably attribute then to um to those trying to describe in limited human ways what they were seeing hmm hmm in in terms of what or the particular ways that jesus is disclosing god um love is a term that we often ascribe a, a great range of meaning to and you know uh, we could we sometimes use it as an excuse for harshness, like I'm being harsh because I love you, or I'm, I'm being harsh because I, I love you and I want to save you from from judgment or something something of that nature. So how do you see Jesus in his particularity defining even what love is if, if we're going to talk about God being revealed as love? Well, there is something to what you just said in terms of harshness even, right? It's like, can love be harsh? Yes, it can. <laughs> can love be gentle? Yes, it can. Um, but but I, I just strongly agree with you that in the particularity of love, we need to we need to look at Jesus. He's what gives the content to what love actually even is. Mm-hmm. You you can just define something as not love if it's not like if it's not Christ-like. And so we're not talking about Miley Cyrus love. We're not talking about the Beatles love. We're not, we're not, you know, not talking about Casanova love. We're talking about Jesus love, which comes into clearest focus on the cross. And this is why the cross is so important and, and central to our revelation of God, because, because that's where it comes into clearest focus in terms of him being self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Mm. The, the, this, um laying down your life for the other that's love mm. uh, everything else is can be refle- reflections of that or maybe um even throughout the life of Jesus you see that same love being experienced in different ways and so sometimes mm. you see it in this supernatural tenderness towards let's say um broken women who come to him or lepers and so on and then other times it's refracted through let's say even the defiance of the of the temple establishment and the sanhedrin mm-hmm. and you see how harsh he can be in matthew um, when he's confronting them but <clears throat> it helps to think of it in terms of wait he's weeping over jerusalem he's weeping over their deaths He's weeping over what the Romans are going to do, and mm. he's crying out as a father would to a toddler who's running for a busy road. Mm. And so instead of projecting our own edge into his words, if we can see the tears flowing down um, and the desperation of a loving father, so that Hebrews 12 will even say, look at when you go through even harsh trials, Never think of it as coming from God other than as a loving father who wants to strengthen weak knees and lift up um, limp arms. You know, he's about restoration. And so um, I I understand how how a constant kind of self-giving love can feel uh, really gentle or really harsh depending on the moment. Like I have a 12-step sponsor who... Uh, my original sponsor would would say, sounded very harsh, but I always knew she was loving my heart. You know, she would just brutalize my ego, though. 
And I'd go into <laughs> self-pity and she'd say, get off the cross, Brad. We need the wood. Like she just would not sympathize with self-pity. And, and, and it, to others, it would have maybe seemed harsh. But I'm like, no, I know this. This is saving my life, you know. So I can handle it if God does that, you know. But, yeah. but that's always divorced from doing harm. That's that's what I would that's where I think we need to draw the line and say that God is not violence if violence is designed is defined as doing harm. No, he's a life giver, not a a harm doer. Hmm. Would you say like that would also connect to how we imagine the act the saving action of Jesus on the cross in in the in the sense of like what is it that we are being saved? from or saved into or when you experience love as harshness and it's i want to i want to keep you from a particular consequence does that impact whether we think um you know jesus dies on the cross to save us from the judgment of god or to save us from the father or um is there something else going on that we might miss in those yeah you know my answer that's a good thanks for putting the ball on the tee for me <laughs> just yeah set that one up yeah thank you so much i uh, yeah i think that when we talk about the cross, we we again need to move away from retribution. And that that is, in fact, you think about your friends who are deconstructing, w- would they even be if there was no deconstruction in their theology? That's like 95% of the problem, right? So we imagine that God was inflicting harm on his son instead of us, penal substitution. He's, yeah. he, he, he's exercising violence to satisfy his wrath, and if you believe that, you don't have to go to hell forever. But if you if you don't, you do. <laughs> you know, so yeah. he'll either harm you or harm Jesus. Take your pick. And here's the prayer that'll help you make your choice. Um, yeah. That it's just not even how the fathers thought. So uh, let's. I'm gonna conflate a bunch of them, but we will sort of say this is very Athanasian, and that is the first thing is. But even more recently, you know. George McDonald. So the first thing, he does need to save us from sin. Well, there's a couple layers to that. One is he forgives us there on the cross. How does how does he cancel the debt of sin? He forgives us. How? By forgiving us. Like it's it's we're always looking for a mechanism or a transaction mm-hmm. or a Coke machine. Mm-hmm. And in fact, forgiveness all the way, remember, already in Hosea, the point of the book, the prophet Hosea is that God can freely forgive. Mm. And he can freely forgive, particularly at the cross, because he becomes the direct victim of Mm. humanity. So he has the right to freely forgive without vengeance, without payment, without satisfaction, absolute freedom. So that's one layer of saving us from sin, and that is uh, being bound up. Forgiveness is being loosed from that. But also mm-hmm. he want he doesn't want to just save us. He doesn't want to just forgive us. He wants to actually rescue us from the sin itself. So you mm-hmm. t- say to a meth addict, well, God forgives you. He's like, that's all well and good, but I'm still a meth addict. So he, he yeah. wants to So in our daily prayers, we pray like this. Uh, we say, Oh Holy Trinity, have mercy on us. Um, wash away our sins, pardon our transgressions, and, and we say, cleanse us from every stain. Cleanse us from every, what does that mean? It's like when I sin, I, I stain, I stain my very being and he wants to cleanse that out of me. Somehow, somehow the cross does that. And I, I want to be careful that I don't mechanize that too. But mm. perhaps, perhaps it's in, it's in beholding the one on the cross that a grace is given that causes me um, Zechariah 12, they will look on the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns for a beloved or grieves for an only uh, for a firstborn. So it's mm. it's like the vision of the cross somehow creates a flood of cleansing tears and healing tears that, that washes out the stains. And then he also needs to save us from um, from the wages of sin, which is death. Mm. So what does he do? Uh, God seeing that we are in a downward spiral towards non-being, needs to go right into death, into Hades, enter, but he can't because he's God, because he God can't die. So he takes on human flesh. He takes on humanity so that he can die. So then he enters Hades. 
but wait, he's still God. So what's, what's going to happen when a God who can't die enters death? Death blows up from the inside and he, mm. he shatters its gates. He's resur- he comes back from the dead and he leaves. He leads a, a, a parade of captives who come out with him. And, and by destroying death, Hebrews 2 says, then he also takes away all the leverage of the enemy who kept you in, in, in bondage through fear of death all your life. So I'd say mm. he saves us from Satan, sin, and death. Or because I'm still a little Baptisty, I like to have alliterations. So uh, he saves us from darkness. Is that true? If it's not an alliteration, yeah, right. <laughs> darkness, dread, and death. The darkness of my my own shadow side. The darkness of the enemy, whatever that is. Um, but also the dread, which is my my fear of death, and how death anxiety produces sin. Mm-hmm. And then death itself, death is not a thing anymore. I mean, it's a doorway. It's a it's a birth canal to eternal life. Hmm. I like that imagery. Yeah. Um, Saint Ignatius of Antioch, when he was heading to his martyrdom, he he ple- he pleaded with his people. He said, "Don't prevent me from becoming human. Don't prevent mm-hmm. me from being born." Mm-hmm. And so he really saw death as a birth canal to life. You know. And that his whole life was just, I'm growing in the womb. I'm getting ready for the, and I suppose baptism was a picture of that too. Hmm. Hmm. Jumping specifically on the notion of the fear of death, it it seems to be the case that a lot of the, when we, when we construct the images of the wrathful God and the, perhaps the pseudo comfort of a, of a theology that kind of is like very clearly laid out that we've got a set of things that we ought to do when we fail to do that or we we fail to believe rightly, then, you know, we can go to hell or we can go to heaven. So I'm wondering how or in what way does this conversation of unwrathing God and, and coming into contact with the more beautiful gospel um, revealed in the person of Jesus, what does this do for our consideration of judgment or what comes after we die? Yeah, you know, in the liturgy, we we do we do talk about a fearful judgment. We do talk about the dread judgment and all of that. Um, although the thing that the the infallible judge is our own conscience accusing us, and mm-hmm. so we turn to the mercy of God to free us from that, even in this life, and we count on that mercy at the final day because Christ is the only one who can really be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, to sit in the mercy seat. Well, the judgment seat is the mercy seat is the cross. This is a thing we need to get back in our heads. We've thought about God, the punishing judge in some sort of, well, you know, those TV shows about about judges in the 1960s and 70s. And, and you've got the defense and you've got the accuser and all, all of that. We imagine that somehow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and And I think we need to let go of that image and understand that um, that the cross is both the judgment seat and the mercy seat. Mm-hmm. And when we see that and we come to that cross, our only defense is Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And mm-hmm. and the only one on that cross is the one who has totalized our forgiveness already mm-hmm. and whose mercy endures forever. So I I then think, Okay, that's a developing thing, right? As an immature Christian, I'm probably going to be fearful, um, and and maybe even God consents to that way of seeing him, if somehow it prevents me from going nuts, you know. Like, uh, mm. but I don't know. I think I think the most mature theology in the New Testament is is Johannine, and in First John chapter four. He says that love is perfected among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. For in this world, we're just like him. And then he says, there is no fear in love. But perfect, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears, fears what? Punishment, has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So I just I just know that sometimes I'm really rattled very deeply with anxiety about my uh, about, about my sin, about how I turn from love, about how I harm other people. Mm. And the best thing for me to do is to go to the throne of grace. 
oh, wait, that's the cross again. The throne mm. of judgment, the throne of grace, the throne of the mercy seat. And there I see the one um, who, who, who did not spare anything for me, but he gave his life and laid it down for me. And, and, and so um, the same one on that cross is the one I will face, you know, one day. And, mm. and I, the more I behold the love at the cross, the more it drives out the fear I have of the dread mm. day of judgment. Or mm. accept it, like it's like, you know what? The fire of love has a lot to purge from me yet. So be it. I know mm. it's the fire of love. Mm. And um, it will only be hellish to the degree that I cling to my shit. So, yeah. Well, and in that sense, um, when you're using the term of the, the fire of judgment, you're referring to that, that refining purification of love that that transforms us and renews that i wonder could you fill that in a little bit and maybe in a comparative sense to the ways that we tend to think about judgment i mean well first of all the very lowest form of human judgment is is vengeance and Mm. then we just legalized it so then you have eye for an eye tooth for a tooth justice but it's still retribution christ has come along and you know the judges of the old testament uh, didn't sit in courtrooms. They were deliverers. So you mm. might also think of Christ as our judge in the sense of a deliverer, like mm. Gideon was or whoever. Um, and so, but but what I am really getting at is restorative judgment versus retributive judgment. Mm. And restorative judgment does not exclude anyone. Uh, Christ says in Mark 9, you will all be salted with fire. But mm. he says, salt is good. So make sure you have salt in yourself. So he flips yeah. it into this kind of, um, that the refiner's fire of Malachi 3 is the same fire um, it, that it burns away the dross and preserves the pure gold it, that you'll see in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that we, we, when we pass through this fire, wood, hay, and stubble are burned away, mm. and gold, silver, and spirit and precious stones are brought forth. Well, what is the wood, hay, and stubble? It's bad motives, uh, strange attachments, um, egoism, all, all of these, but it's not your personhood. Your personhood is being perfected through this fiery love. Um, and and even we'll use an analogy for it that the Christ is in the fire with you like the three boys in Daniel. Mm. And what is burned away? Well, their chains and their ropes, their bondage. And um, and they come out smelling not even of of smoke, you know. And so, and it's the captor who is burned up, and we think of that mm-hmm. spiritually. So yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot more positive than the imagination I had as a kid, picturing people I really loved having their skin supernaturally regenerated so they could feel, feel the flames forever and ever and ever. You know, that's not justice. That's not even, that's not even worldly justice. That's just creepy, you know? Um, but if, if we, if we understand that there's other images, he said, he calls it a launderer's soap. Like we like mm. the fire stuff. Cause we know that that's scary. And maybe that helps to manage people with, <laughs> behavior problems but but if you think of refiners fire and launderers so both are about restoration cleansing purification perfection hmm it's it's also harder i think to have a literalized imagination of a cosmic bathtub or, or wash basin or something of that nature and yet we should right like it's weird because it it should be hard for us to imagine a lake of fire but we do uh because we've seen comic books and bad movies and yeah, but and and frankly, the imagery is there in Scripture. It's just that even if judgment is is profoundly unpleasant, it's not the last word, mm. right? So mercy triumphs over judgment, and so the way David Bentley Hart talks about this in that all shall be saved, and I guess I've been talking about it for about ten years this way, is that these things are consecutive. I, I think I got mm-hmm. the idea from a, a title of a Brian McLaren book. The last word and the word after that. Hmm. Judgment is penultimate, which means second last. Mercy is ultimate, which means forever. Hmm. And uh, even those who believe that it's eternal judgment, well, um, when 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 Jonah is in the whale, 
and he and he prays that God will rescue him. It he ends up saying that God is going to rescue him from eternal judgment. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, go ahead, call it eternal judgment if you want. He'll still rescue you from there. So mm-hmm. he becomes the sign of the resurrection. think a lot of times there's a caricature of because what you're describing kind of leans towards or potentially could be described as as universalist and i know that there's at different points you've kind of pushed back or, or wanted to add nuance to talk about um the idea of ultimate reconciliation as opposed to just this blanket term universalism but it seems to me that like often the case the caricature of these kinds of um conceptions of of judgment the caricature is that this is just an act of wish fulfillment. Like we're just making shit up to try to feel more comfortable or to have a a nicer or more pleasant conception of God. Um, you know, that's more domesticated, that's more permissive that we can say, you know, it's all good. Ultimately, everything's going to be okay in the end. Um, I wonder how would you, how would you push back against that? Um, or how is what you're describing different from just a desire to have you know, a more comfortable vision of what happens when we die. Well, that's, it's, it's awfully kind of people to imagine that I would want that. Mm-hmm. I hope that the bastards burn in hell forever. I, I have a list. Yeah. And so for me, believing in ultimate redemption is an act of repentance, not wish fulfillment. Mm. I'm, I'm turning, mm. I'm turning from malice in my heart mm. from the things I want done to be. So for me, the whole unrathic thing is, has never been about me being a nice guy, wishing God was as nice as me. It's mm-hmm. being resentful of a God who won't let me go, um, smite the people I hate or be the mighty smiter himself. And so, so that's one point I want to make. Yeah. I think, thanks everyone for thinking I'm so kind, but it's, it's bullshit. Um, <laughs> And so it's an act of repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, second, I can't unsee all those scriptures in the New Testament that foresee ultimate redemption. Um, mm-hmm. I tried to write them down. I, I wrote down 32, and by the time I did that, you know, a friend of mine had written 44 and, and said, like, you missed all these ones. And then since then, I, you know, a couple weeks later, I found more. And, and, and you just start seeing them, and you're like, if it's not what I want— it's what the New Testament foresees. Yeah. And the New Testament definitely foresees that as an atom all die, and all, so all in, all in Christ will, will be made alive, and that every knee will bow and tongue will confess, every eye will see him, and you just go on and on and on, right? And yes, yeah. I'm not afraid of all the judgment passages because they're penultimate. Hmm. But, but, but I can't unsee what the New Testament foresees. Um, third, I don't teach it. As dogma, anyway, the church never did. Mm. The Nicene Creed says that um, you know he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. There is no dogma of hell. Mm. Period. And to for me, so I can't teach universalism, just as I can't teach infernalism, and no one should. Mm. To teach infernalism as a doctrine it seems to me a heresy because mm. it's not a dogma of the church. Yeah. So you can argue it, you can debate it, you can have convictions and even share the convictions. But yeah. to dogmatize it goes too far, probably. Lastly, I will say you're exactly right. I've resisted the, the, the word universalism because of not only the caricatures, but because of the many universalists who don't believe sin matters, Jesus matters, the cross matters, judgment matters, or faith in Christ matters. Of course those mm. things matter. Now, I believe roughly the same thing that David Bentley Hart does, but he uses that term for himself. I'm like, I think that's, I think that's a mistake because the moment you use it, the conversation's over for most people. Mm-hmm. And um, what I would rather do is say, um, because the majority of universalists balk on some of those five essentials I've just shared of the gospel— what yeah. I like to say is I'm not a universalist, but I believe in ultimate redemption. Then they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, good, yeah. I get to say what I mean. 
hallelujah. Yeah. You know, Apocatastasis is my new hallelujah. So, <laughs> um, um, but you get what I mean, right? So, so now yeah, I can yeah. say, I believe that all shall be saved through Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, through judgment and faith in him. Mm. The only difference between me then and an evangelical is that I believe that faith in him is still possible post-mortem because Romans 8 says, death can't separate you from the love of God. Mm. Mm. And, and all these other texts which indicate post-mortem um, um, faith, which I, so I, I'm hopeful of that. And I'm not hopeful, mm. is, this is the other problem where Hart, would, uh, Hart has critiqued the hopeful universalist because he thinks that means wishful or doubtful. Yeah. But yeah. when Hart translates the New Testament, he translates it as an objective hope in a person named Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, that's what we mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, watching the time and and with the space that we have left, I, w- I want to really connect to what you had had spoken about in terms of the belief in ultimate reconciliation being an act of repentance. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about this very specifically to uh, your most recent work that came out um, alongside uh, Paul Young, your book, The Pastor. And, you know, in this book, you, you, you follow the, the story of, of this pastor's disintegration and, and healing and this pastor as an, as an abusive one. And, what really struck me in the midst of it is, you know, you offer this very compelling portrait of ultimate reconciliation and restorative judgment. And the thing that really caught me is that it, it's comfortable for me to think about universalism when it or or ultimate reconciliation when it has to do with those who might, you know, be damned on a technicality. So it's it's comforting to me to think about ultimate reconciliation when it involves um, you know, those who were unfortunate enough to be born at the wrong place or the wrong time or inheritors of the wrong belief. But when you start talking about people who have genuinely done harm, genuinely um, committed acts of violence or committed acts of abuse, it becomes a lot harder to think in terms of, you know, an actual belief that they might also be saved. And as I was reading it, it I was doing so fairly shortly after the um, revelations involving uh, Ravi Zacharias were coming to the surface. And I felt this very strong like challenge and revelation in myself about the boundaries that I consciously or unconsciously place around what God is allowed to do or who God is allowed to heal or um, how far love is permitted to go. And so I wonder, could, could you speak to this a little bit in terms of why you felt that this was a valuable story to be told and also why you, you did so in the way that you did? Yeah. Um, so, so first of all, like, despite your challenges when you think about Ravi, I will bet that you do not think that he should burn in a lake of fire for billions of years for what, you know, for his sins. Probably you wouldn't imagine that so that's that's one thing to think about <laughs> um okay then how much should he burn <laughs> and what should burn yeah and and so here's a problem i i think what we we get in this uh, this weird untrue binary that it's like if it's not eternal conscious torment then or retribution mm-hmm. in some sense or another or in some sense because we could say okay well Okay, maybe just a hundred years then. We'll call it purgatory and we'll reduce his sentence, right? Um, okay, okay. But is it retribution or he's off the hook completely? Like, is that the really the only options? And yeah. I, that's why I do believe in the necessity of judgment and, and that it will be precise, you know, even in writing a book like The Pastor. I'm, I'm like, well, if we're going to talk about my repentance um, of toward wanting those who cause harm to be punished. Um, I'm in that category. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's one thing if I were holy and I go, you know, those people out there who harm people, they should go through judgment. Unlike yeah. me. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> no, I'm, I, uh, I, I'm in that same camp and uh accusing and condemning me so it's mm-hmm. it's 
the the thing I have to repent of is my rejection of grace. Mm. So mm. Th- let's just let's just use our imaginations for a moment. I'm totally ripping this off of Sharon Baker. Fantastic uh, article she did one time. She's expanded it into a a book. She calls it a hospitable hell. And she mm. said, no, you can't have. She used Saddam Hussein as an example because that's when she was writing it. She said, you can't have Saddam Hussein just off the hook. Mm. Um, but if but if the mercies of God are effective and his fire is effective and transformative, and he, what if the final judgment is a massive truth and reconciliation com- commission mm. where you can't you can't you don't escape anything you don't get away with anything you have to face the meaning of your life what you did Mm. with it yeah and you have to face it without any coping skills of denial and you have to face it in the presence of god and those you've harmed Mm. and what if you have to make amends to those people and what if that takes a really long time for hitler yeah and what if they are so deeply healed themselves by the love of Christ that they actually minister that forgiveness on Christ's behalf. What if mm. you have, that could feel hellish yeah. to have six million Jews forgiving you? Yeah. For what? But knowing what you did to them, knowing the harm you caused, and 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 like. And then, and then what, right? And so, so I just start mm. thinking about about that. That um, this is already what we're doing in twelve step recovery when we do a fearless moral inventory of ourselves and we examine the exact nature of our wrongs, and then we proceed to make amends for them to people who may be still harmed and still hate us and won't forgive us. That's mm. hellish, but it's love. It's fire, mm. but it's restorative. It's and so I think um, I, I think even in the story in, in the novel, which, by the way, is based in real life um, people's stories that they've shared with us, we're giving voice to it, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this passing through the fiery restorative hell of divine love brings us to freedom and that Christ seems urgent about wanting us to do that now. Mm-hmm. So the objection of well, why don't I just wait till later? It's like because you're because you're wasting your life, you're ruining your life, you're ruining others' lives, and Jesus loves you so much. Why would you? Mm. <laughs> he wants better for you than that. He wants better than all that for all of us. And that and so today is the day when you have your come to the judgment seat of the cross today. Hmm. Yeah. When in that sense, it it really does shift the weight of what it is that God in Christ is is desiring to do with humanity, it shifts from, you know, what is the destination that I'm going to deliver you from or or change that that future location? And it shifts to the restoration of humanity here and now that in some way or another has resonance beyond the grave, but we might not understand the shape of that. But you do have this very real redefining of the way of being human and to me, like when I when I ask the question, like what, you know, what's the point of believing now if if you know there's this ultimate moment where you know we we do get delivered, we do get saved, we do get restored. I have to come back to the belief that God God says the kingdom of God is is here and present among you. That there's something shifting, there's something changing right now. Now I know I told you I'd exit by now, but I I, I do want to address that. I just think. Again, you've got John thinking about this for an extra generation after the synoptics, after Peter's dead, after Paul is dead. He's got 30 more years of communion with Christ where it's revealed to him. Mm. Um, the things we see in John 3, for example, where Christ is not saying, look at, if you believe in me, you'll go to heaven when you die. And if you don't believe in me, you'll go to hell when you die. That's not how G- the jo- Jesus of John thinks about it. He says mm. in John 3, it's like, I haven't come to threaten you with condemnation. I'm telling you, you're already perishing. I've come to rescue you from the 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 hell that you're in now, the living hell. Mm. And I've yeah. come to offer you an eternal life now, mm. defined as knowing me. And and yeah. so the, the perishing versus 
eternal life is very much a today thing for Jesus. He sees the human condition, um, and he wants to move us from alienation into communion. That's that's heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Ali- communion communion is is the essence of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Alienation is the essence of hell, and that I see on the streets every day. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder, as a way to to wrap this up, because again, I want I want to be respectful of the time that we laid out. Um, but as a way to draw this into the close, I wonder what are some of the ways that you've seen this redefined or reimagining or return to the more beautiful gospel disclosed in Christ. What are some of the ways that you've seen that truly change um, the communities of the people of God? I think that a vision of the beautiful gospel, like I've seen it make communities uh, better at being hospitals mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of courtrooms. So those who come there don't feel judged, they feel welcomed and they feel cared for. And it becomes a context where they can surrender their lives to the care of a loving God mm-hmm. um, and and that that care actually has hands and feet through you know, God's children. Um, mm-hmm. So I think about the Good Samaritan parable, for example, right, where the Good Samaritan transforms a, ho- a hostel into a hospital, mm-hmm. and that's what. And that Christ is that great Good Samaritan who's he, he's establishing the church as a healing place. Um, my wife is really into the open table imagery too, which also comes right out of many of Jesus' parables, so that the the church becomes an inc- in, inclusive table. Mm-hmm. And and so Christ is he sends us out and he says, compel them to come in, convince them mm-hmm. that they do belong. People who think they don't belong behind on the street corners, behind the hedges, what in whatever ways have been marginalized or self-marginalized. He said, like, tell them there's a there's a place for them at the table. And 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 again, it's a picture not only of feasting, but of of communion. There's mm-hmm. belonging and so healing and belonging inclusion i i see these happening in real ways um hmm. Hmm. a question that we close with all of our guests is as you consider the possible future of the church in canada specifically um what are you hopeful for um i was i've i've not been hopeful lately <laughs> um because i've watched people uh, leaving bad church and going on a deconstruction journey that just deconstructs them right out of their own sense of meaning and purpose. So it's from one bad thing to another. And then more recently, I found some hope in understanding that the gospel sprouted and even in Judaism itself sprouted out of the soil of affliction. Mm -hmm. And that those who've experienced oppression and affliction, um, they actually have our, they're carrying our message and we need mm-hmm. to go ask them what it is. And so I'm, I'm, I'm reading some of the old black liberation theologians like um, mm-hmm. Howard Thurman right now, and he's rocking my world. And I'm like, oh, there, there is hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what do, what kind of gospel can we get from, from the margins from well it wasn't the margins at one time that was the mm-hmm. cent, that was the center of christianity and it got displaced by a power center mm-hmm. and and it's it was that power center that was making me feel hopeless and that everyone's wanting to flee from it's like yeah. then what's left well what's left are the oppressed and and they have a word for us from the lord and i think the more i'm trying to immerse myself right in that right now cuz i i think they it's I'll give you one example. It's sort of like how um, when when you had uh, black slaves come to America and sort of converted into Christianity, um, they rescued Christianity. They, they, like they were mm-hmm. the only ones mm-hmm. on the continent who knew what the gospel was anymore, that it's about liberation and exodus and freedom from slavery and Isaiah 58 and Luke 4 and all. And, and in, so instead of them being so offended by white supremacy that they abandoned Christ, 
they actually found their way to the roots of the gospel itself. While the mm-hmm. other, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, do we ever need to replay that right now? And mm. uh, oh, that's the, the lives of the martyrs say the same message to us. No, that's beautiful. Well, Brad, thank you so much for, for talking to us and, and going a couple minutes over. Um, but I really appreciate what you've brought into this larger conversation. And in, in certain ways, a lot of what you've written and what you've spoken about fits within the larger deconstruction, reconstruction narrative that's taking place in a lot of, you know, the evangelical world, certainly, but then also beyond that. And I, I know for myself, I've, I've very much appreciated the way that you have entered into that conversation in a way that isn't just playing into the cynicism, but is also opening up further possibilities of what this beautiful gospel could mean here and now within this context. So we appreciate that. Um, are there any, I think you've got a book coming out um, in June, I believe, but um, yeah, are there any upcoming resources that you're releasing or where can people go to find more of what you have have produced? Yeah, if they go to bradjersak.com, there's a book page that usually just links them off to Amazon. And I, I want to say that go. for all the people who condemn Amazon for being the great harlot of, or, you know, whatever, um, they have been very good for authors who, who felt like the publishing company had their boots on our throats. They've mm. given authors away. Uh, forward and so so I'm not embarrassed to send people over there so uh, one mm-hmm. book that I'd love people to read is called In and mm. the subtitle is Incarnation and Inclusion Abba and Lamb and then the forthcoming book uh, um, A More Christ-like Word and the subtitle of that is Reading Scripture the Emmaus Way and it's very heavily influenced by and dedicated to Father John Bear and mm. that that you can pre-order already Oh, great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much and really appreciated this conversation. Well, blessings on you and all that are listening. Thanks for joining us in this episode of The Canadian Orthodox. To access more resources from Brad, including books, lectures, and more, you can connect with him on social media and through his website via the links in the show notes. This episode was recorded and produced by myself, Tim Harder, in Treaty 7 Territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Kenai, Bikani, and Siksika, as well as the Tsutina First Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We recognize the land as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. If you connected with this conversation and would like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other Monday. You can help us to promote the show by leaving a review and sharing on social media. And you can also connect with me on Instagram at IamTimotheos. If you'd like to help support this project financially, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Tim Harder. This is a passion project where on the side of a real job. So your support not only helps to cover the monthly production expenses, but also helps to free up time for me to create more content and to expand the reach of the show. We want to thank you again for joining us and participating in this conversation. We'll talk soon. Peace.